Let's pray together. Father William Beveridge once said, even my repentance needs to be repented of. So I listened to David and his extraordinary expression of a contrite heart in prayer. Lord, I confess as well, even in view of hours of studying this week and attempting to embody this text, even my repentance needs to be repented of. So I pray, Father, that you would come and, and move by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Help us to see what's really here in this text. Rivet our attention on Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. Teach us about true repentance, about real spiritual fruit. All of this, Lord, in view of the extraordinary work that you have accomplished in the gospel Lord, the message of the gospel, the message on a day like today is repent and bear fruit. Teach us about that now and may we walk away changed, having met you in your word. Build up believers, Lord, and may unbelievers become believers through the power of the word preached, we ask for the glory of Jesus. Amen. This time I do invite you to open a Bible to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. The gospel of Luke, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, and if you'd like to use one of the red Bibles from underneath the seat in front of you, uh, this morning's text can be found on page 872 in the red Bibles, page 872. Luke's gospel, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Last week, we studied what I referred to as the crescendo of chapter 12, the crescendo of Jesus' entire teaching over the course of 59 verses. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus relentlessly unfolds the biblical teaching concerning the coming judgment. One way or another, that's how he Uh, That's the thread that runs through all of chapter 12. Judgment is coming. And he wants us to consider what our lives look like in full view of the judgment ahead. So here at the beginning of chapter 13, what we have in a proper sense is the final interaction between Jesus and this particular crowd that he's been preaching to. It may be because of the fact that Jesus has been teaching them about the signs of the times, verses 54 to 56, Or it may be because Jesus just told the crowd in Luke chapter 12, verse 59, what it will cost them were they to stand unprepared before a holy God on judgment day as their judge. Whatever the reason, uh, Jesus' teaching here evidently has made a a rather significant impact upon these people and so significant that we read beginning in chapter 13, verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, 
Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have been seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What's the point? of Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. I mean, what's the greatly desired effect that the Holy Spirit wants to achieve with this passage? What's the message we ought to draw out of these nine verses of Scripture? Here's my effort to summarize what we just read. Our response to tragedy reveals a truckload about us. In adversity, Jesus has one ultimate goal for us. Repent and bear fruit. Our response to tragedy is revealing. It reveals a truckload about us. In adversity, Jesus has one ultimate goal for us. Repent and bear fruit. So here's the first of two points today. Point number one. It's not the presence of sin in our lives that's the biggest problem. It's the absence of repentance. It's not the presence of sin in our lives, that's the biggest problem. It's the absence of repentance. Now, Luke is careful to situate this particular exchange between Jesus and the crowd, starting in chapter 13, verse 1. It's the, it's the final scene to the climactic words of Jesus that we heard already last week in chapter 12, verses 57 to 59. In the world of literature, uh, Luke 13, 1-9 is what we'd call the denouement of chapter 12. It's the, it's the final outcome of the story. It takes place after the climax of the plot. You'll notice that Luke sets this final exchange up this way as he writes in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him, told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. It is difficult to know with any sort of precision exactly what Luke is referring to in chapter 13, verse 1, but it is clear enough from Luke's language that Pontius Pilate, who was the governor and the prefect over the region of Judea at this time, Pontius Pilate had committed an atrocious act of terrorism against some Jewish worshipers not long before. Um, Pilate ruled the region of Judea for about a decade. He began his reign in A.D. 26, and that means that this situation had happened within five years of uh, that atrocity. So while this was something of a newsflash in ancient Israel, it, it wasn't all that unusual. The Jewish historian Josephus records no less than five different moments of bloodshed like this in the, in the temple courts or in the environment uh, that fit the bill during this time. So it is difficult to know for certain exactly what event this was. 
At the very least, we know for certain that a number of Jewish worshipers from the region of the Galilee were slain on the command of Pontius Pilate, presuming uh, they were either approaching or even in the midst of offering their sacrifices at the temple. The text says that they were Galileans, which indicates that they were Jews who had made a pilgrimage uh, some distance from the, the north down, uh, down to the, the hill country in the, in the south. In any case, what happened was, in the words of one of the reformers, Pilate's officers came upon them and mingled the blood of the sacrificers with the blood of the sacrifices. A horrific situation, to say the least. Now, it may be that at least some in the crowd wondered, in view of all that Jesus had been teaching, that if this event was perhaps a unique expression of God's judgment on these Jewish worshipers. So they, they call him, this to his attention and they want him to weigh in on it. And, and that he does, starting in verse 2. Luke 13, verses 2 and 3, Jesus replies, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, Jesus' response to the crowd is intense but it's not all that surprising in view of the exchange he's had with them up to this point. You get the sense that from his teaching, especially toward the end of chapter 12, that his engagement with the crowd is becoming sharper. Um, he's been teaching on the judgment for some 59 verses, and they're just not getting it. And they call his attention to what they believe is an act of judgment, the slaughter of the Galileans, and he's going to turn up the volume one last time. Uh, notice that inside of Jesus' question in verse 2 is a, is a clear affirmation, actually, that the Galileans are, in fact, sinners, undoubtedly sinners. Jesus asked, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? So, so don't miss the fact that he's calling these folks sinners. Jesus begins with that as given information. Um, what the question draws out, however, is that they weren't any worse sinners than any of the other Galileans for whom this did not happen, didn't die in this way. One truth that's blindingly obvious that we ought always to bear in mind in light of verse 2 is that all sufferers are sinners. Unless you're Jesus, all sufferers are sinners. That's a principal fact of life that will serve you as you seek to understand your family and your church family, your neighbors and Truth be, untold, truth be told, your own heart. Unless you're Jesus, all sufferers are sinners. In fact, we can go further than that. According to Jesus, we learn something here about the relative gravity between suffering on the one hand and sinning on the other. As the Puritan Thomas Manson liked to say, put your sufferings and your sins in the balance and see which weighs heaviest. Which is to say, the greatest tragedy here isn't the act of terrorism that was perpetrated by Pilate. The greatest act of tragedy, the greatest tragedy here is the sin that brought about the ultimate consequence of perishing. One thing we have to understand as we seek to interpret this passage is the word that Jesus chooses here in verse 3 to refer to the fate of these individuals. Verse 5 as well. The ultimate repercussion of sin, namely that sinners perish. When Jesus says to the crowd in verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We need to be absolutely clear about what Jesus is referring to. When Jesus uses the word 
likewise, at first blush, it, it almost is as if he's saying, unless they repent, they will die exactly as the Galileans did. Unless you repent, Pilate is going to mingle your blood with your sacrifices the next time you approach the temple courts. And I, I don't think that's what he's saying. The reason I don't think that's what he's saying is bound up with the meaning of this word, perish. In the New Testament, perish is a rather technical term that doesn't refer to simply the death of an individual. Rather, it refers to something much more significant. And we can get at that by just considering the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. In John 3.16, we hear Jesus say, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice that the, in the verse of John 3.16, perish is set in direct opposition to eternal life. Here's another example. 1 Corinthians 1.18, we read, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So notice in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, those who are perishing are set in direct opposition to those who are being saved. So when Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, he's saying, unless they repent, they will face eternal death. They will not be saved. The greatest tragedy here isn't that these Galileans suffered in this way, but rather that they perished after suffering. And the greater tragedy still is that Jesus' listeners are careening toward the same destination unless they repent. Now, before we seek to do some application here, we have one more illustration that we need to consider, and Jesus himself furnishes the example. So let's just go there. It's in verses 4 and 5. Jesus continues, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus responds to the crowd with reference to the slaughter of the Galileans, and then he adds an example of his own. Once again, we don't really know anything else about the event uh, that Luke speaks of here in Luke 13, 4. It's the only reference I can find in all of antiquity about it, but, but Siloam is a, is a location, an ancient site in old Jerusalem just south of the old city. What sort of tower it was, we don't know, but we do know that its collapse caused the catastrophic death of 18 citizens of Jerusalem at the time. And Jesus makes reference to it because he wants to draw the parallel between the act of terrorism in verse 1 and what we might call the act of God in verse 4. Now, truth be told, God is sovereign over both events. It's just that the tragedy in verse 1 had an immediate human cause, whereas the tragedy in verse 4 is more along the lines of what we might call a natural disaster. In both cases, according to Jesus, we have sinners suffering, in fact, perishing. And the point that Jesus wants to drive home is that these deaths are a cautionary tale. They are a warning to the living. And here's the point for us today. Our response to tragedy reveals a truckload about us. Jesus knows this. Test yourself. When, when disaster strikes, when affliction interferes, when suffering invades, what is the very first impulse of your heart? Regenerate or not. 
Let's get specific. When you first heard about Sandy Hook Elementary School hundred, uh, several, several years ago, or San Bernardino, or Orlando, or Las Vegas, or the church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, or Marjorie Stoneman High School in Parkland, Florida, what was your immediate reaction? I'll tell you what lots of folks do. They ask questions. Questions like, where was God in all of this? Or they cry out, why me? Notice that both of these responses, or scores of others like them, are light years apart from the response that Jesus is looking for. In adversity, Jesus has one ultimate goal for us, repent and bear fruit. Now we'll discuss what it means to bear fruit in the next point, but before we get there, let's at least begin to unfold what it means to repent. Let's, let's do some application here. That's the point of these tragedies, not to mention all tragedies, isn't it? Repent. Verse 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repent. That's the meaning of this section of Scripture. That's the point he's making here. It's not the presence of sin in our lives that's the biggest issue. It's the absence of repentance. Well, if we're going to do it, we have to know how to define it. And the finest definition I've ever heard of came from the pen of Wayne Grudem. First heard this 18 years ago, and it has served me well ever since. Dr. Grudem uh, has a definition of repentance we've included in your study questions uh, that you could take a look at too later this week. Grudem says that repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's a renouncing of sin and a sincere desire to abandon your sin and to follow after Jesus in obedience. If I had a nickel for every time I've repeated that definition from this pulpit, I'd have a lot of nickels. This is a definition you might want to consider memorizing. Repentance is heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. Remember 1 John 1.8 and 1 John 1.10 say that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So, so let's be certain. While perfection is our aim, it will not be our achievement, at least not in this lifetime. While we live from womb to tomb, there will undoubtedly be indwelling sin in our lives until Jesus comes to be with us or we go to be with him. Indwelling sin is a fact. It's a, it's a fact that we are wise to admit. Nevertheless, there is a huge distinction between me warring against my indwelling sin and me making peace with my indwelling sin. There's a huge distinction. And what Jesus is calling for here in verses 3 and 5 is war. All-out war. So repentance is heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. And we are wise to add in this moment that, that repentance is not a singular moment in our lives so much as it is a constant mindset for our lives. Every day, no days off allowed. The Puritan Zachary Crofton expounds on uh, Martin Luther's words. Martin Luther begins by saying, uh, says this, repent, when Jesus says repent, he willed that our entire lives be one of repentance. Zachary Crofton expounds on Luther when he says, repentance is a habit. 
a power, a principle, a spring, a root, a disposition, not a bare, single, transient action. Repentance is not the work of an hour or a day, but a constant frame and course and bent of the soul. That is what Jesus is talking about. Getting low and going throughout your day. Yes, sin indwells us, but it will not master us. Yes, I have sin, but sin does not have me. That's the mark of the repentant person. The poet George Herbert called repentance the great virtue of the gospel. I'm inclined to agree. Repentance is the great virtue of the gospel. I think he got that right. It's not the presence of sin in our lives. That's the biggest problem. It's the absence of repentance, which leads us to the second point. We want to ask, how would I know if I'm repenting? What does that look like? What's my role here? What's God's role? Well, here's the second point today. It flows from the first. Point number two. The only infallible evidence of true repentance in our lives is spiritual fruit over the acid test of time. I realize I'm hopelessly mixing my metaphors here. I would do this over if I could. I'm not sure what fruit over acid looks like. So, The only infallible evidence of true repentance in our lives is spiritual fruit over the acid test of time. Look with me at our text again, this time verses 6 to 9. Luke 13, verses 6 to 9. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The only infallible evidence of true repentance in our lives is spiritual fruit over the acid test of time. Given this parable's original context, there is no doubt who the subject of the parable, the intended audience of this parable is. It's the nation of Israel. He's talking about the nation of Israel in the parable and he's speaking to the nation of Israel in the parable. Verses 6 to 9 are a parable of a largely unrepentant first century Jewish people. The reason we know that is because across the Old Testament and the New, God uses various vegetation metaphors to speak of his ancient covenant people. He does it relentlessly. They're a vine, they're a fig tree, they're an olive tree, they're a forest. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, we read, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Psalm 80 verse 8 says, you brought forth a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Hosea chapter 9 verse 10 says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. So without a doubt, when a first century Jew hears Jesus use this language in verse 6, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. They know who he's talking about. He's talking about them. He's talking about the Jewish nation. 
Notice how the owner of the vine dresser says to the vine, or notice how the owner of the vineyard says to the vine dresser in verse 7, look for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. How many years did he come seeking fruit on the fig tree? Three. How long was Jesus' public ministry in years? Three. It's a parable about the nation of Israel. Nevertheless, these verses have plenty to say to us as well. And while we as a church do not replace Israel, perish the thought, we do not replace Israel, we do reflect her fairly frequently, don't we? I think we do. There's no temptation that's overtaken Israel that's not common to the church. They're not bearing fruit. They're not changing. They're not growing. They've hit what we might call a dry season. You ever been there? Spiritually dry as the Sahara? I see some nodding heads. I'm glad I'm not alone. I've been there too. We all might have been there and perhaps might be there right now, but let's, let's not misunderstand or minimize the significance of this situation. If we genuinely come to a place in our walk with the Lord when we are not producing spiritual fruit in our lives, this is a bigger deal than we might ever imagine. It's a significant concern. Notice the situation uh, puts the owner, notice the situation that this puts the owner of the vineyard in. Again, verse 7 says, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Notice the solution. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? See the predicament that the landowner finds himself in? New Testament scholar Daryl Bach explains it this way. He says, his dilemma is what to do with the unproductive tree especially since it takes nutrients from other trees in the vineyard and it takes up space in the vineyard. That is a dilemma for a vineyard owner. And his instinct is simply to instruct the gardener to cut his losses and remove the tree. Why should it take up the ground? Does this concern you at all? This is designed to. Particularly if you're the sort of Christ follower who's been on cruise control recently. You know what I mean? You're not growing in your knowledge of God. In your desire to see sin put to death. You're not straining forward toward holiness like you once used to. In your discovery or your deployment or your development of your spiritual gifts in the context of the local church, it's been far too long since you've thought about rolling up your sleeves and serving. Maybe you've lost passion with your designs for your neighborhood in terms of evangelistic passion and possibilities. If you're spiritually drying out, understand first of all, while that's common, it's not healthy. According to this text, it's potentially deadly. Now, thank God for the vine dresser in this parable, right? While the landowner in verse 7 is ready to lay an axe to the root of the tree, a la Luke chapter 3, verse 8, that's John the Baptist, the axe is already at the root of the tree. Clearly, uh, the tree isn't dead yet because the vine dresser in verses 8 and 9 has another suggestion. And this is the good news, by the way, in this passage. It's an intense passage, but there's good news here in verses 8 and 9. The vine dresser has a vision to bring the fig tree back to full fruit-bearing health. And here's what he says starting in verse 8. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. 
then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Right? You do that much work for the tree, if it's not going to bear fruit, it's probably dead. Walks like a duck, talks like a duck. It's a dead duck. Now it's interesting, because this is a parable, right? And if God is the landowner, who's the vine dresser? Yeah, I mean, if we press this too hard with our doctrine of the Trinity, I think the parable is going to backfire on us. That, that's my sense anyway. It's going to short circuit. If we do that, we're going to miss something important about the exchange between the landowner and the vine dresser. Once again, uh, it's, it's Daryl Bach to the rescue. Listen to Bach's explanation here. It's really good. This is why we read commentaries. Bach says, The parable is not designed to indicate an argument within the Trinity. Rather, it is a graphic way to portray God's displeasure alongside his patience. I think that's exactly right. That's what's going on here. And if that's exactly right, that's an incredibly powerful image, and it serves us notice. Think about your life, my life, our lives before God. If you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, then you have discovered that Just like this fig tree, there are seasons where your fruit is modest at best. You're just not growing or changing like you used to be. You're drying up. What does God think of seasons like that in our lives? Well, on the one hand, verse 7 makes it quite plain. He is not pleased. That's not the design of the Christian life. The design of the Christian life is the absolute reverse. Listen to John 15, 16 and John 15, 8 where Jesus says, You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear, what? Fruit. And that your fruit should abide, should remain. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now we could spend an entire sermon just on those words. Jesus has appointed us to bear fruit, fruit that remains. God's glory is on the line. Even our claim to be authentic authentic disciples of Jesus is on the line with regard to fruit bearing. So we can, can we simply agree at least that God is displeased when as Christians we fail to grow and change by the grace of God and that this state of affairs is a dangerous one in which to find ourselves. I think we can agree on that. Now not only is God displeased, these verses say that clearly, but it's also true that God is extraordinarily patient. And this is the good news here. Once more, Luke 13, 8 and 9. I love this. And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So God is patient. He's patient with believers. I can't help but think of 2 Peter 3, 9. You know 2 Peter 3, 9? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who? Y'all. Me. The church. 2 Peter 3.9 is about the repentance of believers. He is patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, but all should reach repentance. That's good news. God is patient toward us. He is long-suffering, and He's perfectly that way and not only is he patient but according to luke 13 verses 8 and 9 god's got a game plan <laughs> what does verse 8 say he's going to do he's going to dig around the tree and then what's he going to do he's going to put on manure 
Now, there are times when the King James Version just excels in English Bible translation, and this happens to be one of those times. We don't have the KJV in the seats here, but, but maybe we should have for this verse. Uh, in verse 8, the vine dresser in the KJV says, I shall dig about it and dung it. Isn't that fantastic? What's he going to do? He's going to dig about it. He's going to dung it, which is a memorable way of saying his plan is to stimulate growth, but it's not going to be pleasant. And some of you know what this is like. You're, you're in a season of barrenness. You're wondering where your passion for Christ has gone. And you cry out to him for repentance. And he can grant repentance. 2 Timothy 2.26 says the Lord grants repentance. You cry out to him for heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. You cry out for repentance. And because he loves you and because he's heard your prayer, he leads you into another season This time a season of extraordinary adversity. He shovels on the manure. (laughs) And through the adversity, God strips you of everything you might be tempted to depend on until he alone is left. And what you discover is that he is good and that he is enough. And the result? Fruit, growth, change, maturity. The only infallible evidence of true repentance is spiritual fruit over the acid test of time. Let's put these points together and and review. Our response to tragedy reveals a truckload, a truckload about us. In adversity, Jesus has one ultimate goal for us. Repent and bear fruit. I trust by now it's become plain to see that these aren't two separate goals but one, right? Repent and bear fruit aren't two separate steps. They're two sides of the same coin. Repentance includes a changed life, and a changed life is the evidence of true repentance. It's not the presence of sin in our lives. That's the biggest problem. It's the absence of repentance. And the only infallible evidence of true repentance is spiritual fruit over the acid test of time. You know, the first nine verses in Luke chapter 13, they are unique in all the Bible. Uh, You will search throughout the other Gospels in vain for this passage. Luke is the only one who includes this account. And yet at the same time, the text we've studied today is of a piece of everything that we read in Scripture. The central thrust of this passage is the central thrust of the Bible, In view of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, Ephesians 4.1. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, Philippians 1.27. Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. In other words, in view of the character of our God, severe but patient toward us in our sin, in view of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and since suffering and adversity are coming your way, if they're not already on your doorstep or in the house, they're coming your way. In calm weather, mend your sails. Take notes today, file this away, and pull it out when it comes. But since adversity is coming, the message of Jesus to us in this moment and every moment is repent and bear fruit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess 
that even in view of uh, stunning suffering and adversity, you are singularly unromantic in your response. You don't coddle us. First century Jews faced tough things, and yet you met those tough things with tough words. We need tough truths in tough times. And so I pray, Father, that you would help our hearts to become tender toward this tough truth. There is no safer place than repentance. He who walks humbly walks safely, John Owen says. So teach us more, Lord, about genuine spirit-born repentance, sorrow over sin, grief over sin, a sincere desire to renounce our sin and walk in obedience after Jesus Christ. Lord, the gospel, the grace of the gospel calls for nothing less. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.